in the midst of a cold Chicago winter, a difficult pregnancy that kept me largely nauseated and in bed, a harsh football season that left us with so much stress about what the future held for our family. In the midst of all that, the phone rang. It was John Shoup. He was in Tampa interviewing with John Gruden for a job with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I had actually told John Shoup before he left, don't call me from down there and tell me you've taken a job without talking to me first. You see, that has happened before. NFL jobs, they happen fast and you get offered a job and you either take it on the spot or you don't, you lose it. I knew John was walking into a place that would be very tempting for him. This charismatic coach, John Gruden, he loved to talk offense. He was all about winning football games. I knew that that would be very enticing for my John. And I wanted us to take the time we needed to make a decision that really worked for our family at such a tender time. We had a baby on the way, a son who would turn four in just several weeks. So back to that phone call. The phone rings. I pick it up. Hello? Hey, Marsh. I'm here with John Gruden, and he wants to talk to you. My heart dropped. I knew what was happening before Gruden got on the phone. I knew it. We were moving to Tampa without any input from me. The regular pregnancy nausea that I was used to having got amplified to a full-on disequilibrium. Well, aren't we going to talk first, I said. But it was too late. Gruden already had the phone. Hey, Marsh, he called me. This term of endearment that my John uses even though I had never met John Gruden and I didn't know him at all. It felt really invasive and gross. Your husband and I are having a blast together down here. We can't wait for you to get here. You're going to love it down here. I can't even remember what else he said after that. It was all just noise. Nothing of substance. Not one thing asked of me. When John got back on the phone, I said, Is this what you want, John? Isn't he notorious for long hours and not sleeping at night? And John Shoup said, yes, this is what I want. I'm so excited. I think it will be a great place for us. Welcome to Going Deep. Sports in the 21st Century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. This episode of Going Deep, The John Gruden Experience. 
What does the John Gruden and Bruce Allen email exchange scandal reveal about systems and structures and cultures in the National Football League? And how does the NFL's habit of firing and scapegoating assure that those systems, structures, and cultures not only remain intact, but become more deeply entrenched and protected? This episode draws on our own John Gruden experience. But this episode's not really about John Gruden. It's about a journey of discovery and transformation. And it's about how cultures get protected and disrupted and how sports continue to reveal some deep truths about what it means to be human in this complicated world. I remember the story a little bit differently. You know, as the offensive coordinator for the Chicago Bears, where we coached for five seasons, in 2003, the Bears had just gone seven and nine, and our entire staff was fired, just two years removed from a 13 and three season. I was feeling pretty insecure. I was feeling pretty depressed, like I'd never felt before. I remember I was at a coffee shop in our little suburban neighborhood of Libertyville, Illinois, when my phone rang. It was John Gruden. He called me really soon right after the season, and he said, how fast can you get to the airport? I want you to come to Tampa and be my quarterback's coach. I remember I hustled back. I told Marsha what happened. Next thing I know, I was on a plane headed down to Tampa. The interesting thing about this is Monty Kiffin, the defensive coordinator at that time, picked me up at the airport. And I really spent the bulk of the day and evening with Monty Kiffin. You know, when I was the offensive coordinator of the Bears and Monty was the defensive coordinator, even before John had gotten there, Monty and I had had some epic battles and we sat down and we watched film of the Chicago Bears in games that I called and the Buccaneers in games against games that Monty was calling. And it was invigorating. It was stimulating. It, it was great talking to one of the great NFL coaches of all time. And uh, we're just going over the game plan with each other. Monty and I went to lunch. We went to dinner. We spent most of the day together. And it's late. That phone call back to Marshall was kind of late in the afternoon or early in the evening. And it's really the first time that I saw John when I was there. I walked in and John said to me, hey, I talked to Monty. This sounds great. Let's do this. I can't remember exactly how we ended up calling Marsha, but I do remember John took the phone from me and started talking to Marsha. And the next thing I know, John said, now you got to head down to Bruce's office and get the paperwork done. Bruce Allen was our general manager. And I remember walking down to Bruce Allen's office. I sat down in Bruce's office and, and Bruce laid the contract out in front of me. At that time, Bruce was offering me a three-year contract to be the quarterback's coach. And I remember Bruce said, understand this. 
you signed this contract and we're not going to let you out of it to go be an offensive coordinator. You signed this contract and we're holding you to it. I said to Bruce, I want to be an offensive coordinator. He said, well, we're not going to let you out of the contract to do it. And I said, then I want to sign a one-year contract. I remember Bruce and I started butting heads right there in that very meeting. And I'm not even sure John, I'm not even sure when John uh, Gruden knew that I just signed a one-year contract and not a three-year. I actually think it was in the middle of the season. I realized quickly Bruce wasn't a guy who was used to not getting his way. And uh, I signed a one-year contract, went back out visited some more with Monty and watched a ton of film. It wasn't until later on that I thought to myself, it's kind of interesting. I went down there and spent two days in Tampa interviewing. 90% of the time that I spent there was with Monty Kiffin and every other coach on the football staff during that time was on vacation. I'd never met any other coaches on the football staff until I moved there. I wonder if that would have changed my mind at all. So, John... I listened to the way you tell that story, and it's interesting that I've never heard a lot of that. I've never heard you reflect on it that way. From my perspective, it was just that phone call with John Gruden. That's really all I knew about what happened down there. I think maybe you had told me about the contract with Bruce Allen. I think I, I think I knew about that. I didn't know this cast of characters, except that John Gruden had an, a reputation. And it strikes me as I look back on it, we didn't have much of a framework to apply to what was happening and what feelings were coming up for us other than just, we had a young family, you were young in your career, you know, it was kind of like the next step. And it was all about us as a family. And I look back on it now, again, knowing now what has happened to John Gruden. And I think there's so many more layers to that experience. So many more things about what happened to you and to me and to us that tell a bigger story about how the NFL operates. John Gruden was the darling of the NFL. He was, he was the poster child of like the eccentric, brilliant football genius of the NFL with such a personality. He was like, a he was almost like a caricature or something. And, and I think that cult of personality is a big part of the NFL. And and even though the way you tell the story is that you really didn't have that much dealings with him, he's why you went there. His cult of personality was something you wanted to be close to. 
it's like he was seen as somebody who knew how to win and how to succeed. And really, I mean, really, he doesn't, you know, I mean, really, he doesn't. Well, at that point, I'm not sure that I was thinking about our entire family. I think I was just fired by the Chicago Bears. Pretty big city. It was all over the news. My psyche, I I think I was very fragile. Very fragile. And the first phone call that I got after the season was from John Gruden. And it really boosted my morale when I was Mm -hmm. down. And it was seductive. Anytime that you move in the NFL, you know, it's a bit of a blur. Because like I said, the first thing they ask you is how quick can you get to the airport? There's a ticket waiting for you. And they often say pack for two or three weeks because if it works out, you're not going home. It was a bit of a blur, but I do remember how stimulated I was sitting and talking football with Monty Kiffin for just hours upon hours. And then when I went back and we did meet with the staff and I got to know the staff, I remember also feeling quite stimulated, stimulated sitting in installation meetings uh, with John. There was nobody. I, I've never been around anybody who could install a past concept in front of a room, uh, whether it's the quarterbacks, whether it's the rest of the staff, quite like John could. It, it was theater. It was entertainment. It was interesting. But John was not the best coach I've ever been around. He was the best presenter and, like you said, almost a caricature of a, of a person. But he was not the best play caller, the best coach, the best schemer that I've ever been around. But son of a gun, could he present material? And I did. I learned a lot from John, and I'm grateful for that experience. You know, I remember a lot about those installation meetings. Before you go more into that, because I know where you're going with that. (laughs) I remember hearing some about that. I feel like part of the John Gruden experience, and I'm not talking about just our experience, but the, you know, the kind of larger cultural iconography of the John Gruden experience invites us to reframe some of the ways we understand not just him, but the collective culture that gave rise to him, that made him a success, that made him somebody that didn't really have to have a lot of substance, but was a showman. I mean, really his, his best years were probably the years he spent doing Monday night football or whatever. I mean, he was, that was, he was that was perfect really, for the, that he was job. perfect for that. And I remember when they hired him out of that, I thought, what in the world, why would he go back into coaching when this is the perfect job for him? But I wonder if we might, 
as we go along and as we reflect, use some frameworks to look at the kind of cultural iconography that that this experience creates in vivid relief for us to look at. And Tema Oaken is a social theorist who's done a lot of work on white supremacy culture. She has a, a famous um, article that she wrote um, called The Characteristics of White Su- Supremacy Culture. And just in the last year, she updated it. And um, it's now called White Supremacy Culture, colon, Still Here. You can find out more about this document at whitesupremacyculture.info. It's a really, really great document. We've used it a lot at Grace Covenant where I work, just kind of looking as a way to look at our own culture. And one of the things that is coming up for me right now as you talk about what got you there is that one of the hallmarks of white supremacy culture is urgency, a constant sense of urgency, this habit of thinking that we have to make a decision right now. We, we don't have time to be inclusive. We don't have time to ask other people what they think about this. We don't have time to collaborate. We especially don't have time to collaborate with people that don't have formal power like in football, that would be women. Players are a lower rung than coaches. We don't have time to like know what, what they think. Part of what a, what a sense of urgency does is it keeps in place power imbalances. And I think one of the things that the NFL thrives on are, are power imbalances. And that's why we have, you can see these this phenomena of these charismatic men that become head coaches they get paid a lot of money and if they're good showmen if they're good at just breeding confidence in people and they're lucky enough to get a good quarterback and make a run and this sense of urgency is a way for them to protect their power it's a way for the system to keep going and it protects other kind of unseen power imbalances as well. And I just think about the way that you were told, like, you have to decide this right now. You know, we're not going to let you out of it. You got to sign it right now. You got to stick with it. And like you said, even when you asked a question about it, that maybe put you on unsure footing with Bruce and John Gruden because you weren't all in. listening to Going Deep on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Going Deep on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I think by signing only a one-year contract, I was definitely at odds with Bruce Allen from the get-go. And like I said, I really don't think John even knew that I signed a one-year contract till about midway through the season. You know, we had an interesting quarterback's room. Brad Johnson was the incumbent starter, but our quarterback's room also consisted of Brian Greasy, who does Monday Night Football now, Chris Sims, who does uh, Sunday Night Football in America now, 
Jason Garrett, who's the longtime head coach of the Dallas Dallas. Cowboys and is now the offensive coordinator for the New York Giants. And uh, our quality control coach was Kyle Shanahan, who's now the head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. So we had a pretty good cast of characters in that meeting room. Mm-hmm. And our meeting room was pretty productive. And so I don't think John ever questioned my commitment to the Buccaneers until I can't exactly pinpoint it. But I remember midway through the year, I was talking to one of the other coaches and I said, I think he just realized I've only signed a one year contract. And he may have overheard somebody talking to me about the potential of a coordinator's position somewhere else. I I can't remember exactly, but John and I started to split as well, although I might have been splitting from John a lot sooner uh, than he might have felt. So back to the sense of urgency, I just want to say a little bit about how Tema Oaken fleshes that out. So a constant sense of urgency makes it difficult to be inclusive or to encourage a lot of people to be involved in decision-making. A constant sense of urgency reinforces existing power hierarchies. It also privileges those who process information quickly or think they, or people who think they process information quickly And it also encourages a lot of like self-righteousness to manipulate decision-making to, in other words, the more confident you appear, the more people are going to just defer to the person in power and the more they're able to kind of push things through. It reinforces the idea that we're ruled by time, deadlines, needing to do things quickly. It makes it harder to distinguish what's really urgent and what's not. Everything else is in the service of this sense of urgency, which leads to physical illness, burnout, intellectual burnout, spiritual burnout, exhaustion, And I think about that part of John's M.O., John Gruden's M.O., was that he didn't sleep, but he slept about three hours a night. I remember that was one of the things he really took pride in, that he he didn't need to sleep. He and that was one of your trademarks of kind of like I get in there before everybody else and, you know, nobody's going to outwork me. And I think part of the NFL's part of the way the NFL kind of keeps churning people through is if somebody comes along, that's willing to work longer or harder or sacrifice more or have more of a sense of urgency. Again, that just kind of keeps the wheels turning in this, in this culture that isn't, isn't really about kind of human thriving. It's about, I don't know what it's about. I guess it's about profit generation. John Gruden had an image of getting into work early and being an extremely hard worker and outworking his competition. That was attractive to me. 
I can remember as a young coach reading a quotation from an old coach named Woody Hayes, who was once the head coach at Ohio State University. He said, if you give me a big enough head start, I'll beat Jesse Owens in a race. And I remember as a young coach thinking that means I just got to be at the office before everybody else. I got to be the first one in and I got to be the last one to leave. And it really served me well early in my career. I was the youngest position coach in the NFL. I was the youngest offensive coordinator in the NFL and had a great deal of success. And when I got fired at Chicago, here, this other guy that had the same, what I thought had the same work ethic, was calling me right away. When I got there, John does indeed get in early. It's the first guy in the office. He's in a lot of times at 4.30 in the morning. And I was at my desk every day by 5. But John would be the first one in the office. John would also be the first one to talk about himself being the first one in the office, make sure everybody knew that he was the first one in the office. And all the assistant coaches would often roll their eyes while John would be talking about that because what many people don't realize, and I didn't realize till I got there, John was first the first one to leave as well. <laughs> right after dinner time, it, while John got to the office at 4.30 in the morning, he was out of the office usually by 6.30 or 7, and the rest of us were still there till well after 10, 11 o'clock at night. That episode doesn't get shared quite as much because you're right. John wanted to foster that image of being an incredibly hard worker. And let me say this. He, he was a hard worker. And sometimes I felt I saw it in John and I saw it. I felt it in myself that that work became diminishing returns. I'd work so hard Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, even Friday that I was tired by the time game time rolled around. And I saw that in John as well. I didn't think John was a particularly good coach on game day, a particularly good play caller, making adjustments during the game. And I'm not sure that I was a, a very good play caller either, although I think we shared the trait that we could both really put together a game plan. We could put together a game plan as well as any coach in the league because during the week, we'd work hard. But by the weekend, I think he was really tired on game day. I know as a play caller, a lot of times I was really tired on game day. It became diminishing returns. That thing that got me to where I was at a young age probably also cost me my job and, frankly, some degree of health uh, later on in life. I remember you, when we decided we were leaving Tampa Bay, I think we were walking, taking a walk, and you looked at me and said, I, we've got to get out of here. I don't feel good being here. And you told me, you had been telling me things here and there, like you'd come home and just say, I don't, I don't feel good in that atmosphere. There are a lot of things going on that really I don't agree with. And it wasn't about football. It was about morality, really. And, and that atmosphere of, and I think that's some of what 
got revealed in the emails that John was fast and loose with sexism and racial comments. And um, I remember you telling me about pornographic images that he would show during those presentations you just referred to a minute ago um, and things that people would say, not just him, but other people that the atmosphere was one of a clear tolerance of things that were sexist, racist, whatever. And I remember that, that women were not allowed in your office. I never saw your office in Tampa. I was not allowed to go into the office. And I think that that kind of um, male dominated atmosphere in which basically, again, he could say or do whatever he wanted, how that after a while was also very diminishing for you or made it not worth it. To paint a picture, the offices at Tampa while I were there were not very nice. I used to have to throw a rock at the door to scare away some cats before I would hustle in through the door. There were uh, old trailers put together to make this office space. They have since moved into a beautiful facility. But in 2004, they were in these old trailers and there were no real boundaries. You could run into people in the media in the hallway. You could run into uh, 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 the scouting department in the hallway and certainly other coaches, it was crowded and you never knew who you might bump into. And so that's important because there were people always outside the room when John, our team meeting room, when John was doing his installation meetings and his installation meetings were unbelievable. It, it was a show. It was a theater, and I learned I learned a, a lot. I'd take copious notes. I'd be sitting there with our quarterbacks, Brad, Chris Sims, Brian Greasy, Jason Garrett. I mean, we'd all just be thinking to ourselves, this is great stuff. If we can make this stuff work, it, it's going to be super. But I remember early on, we used to have these beta tapes. And so it was an actual tape that went into a machine, a cassette tape. And John would make his own cassette tapes. I admired him for that. You know, he did his own work. He didn't have just an assistant doing it. And I'll never forget the first time he's showing this video and he's going through this past concept and I'm stimulated. I'm fired up. We're all sitting there on the edge of our seat because he is really good. He's really good at that. And then all of a sudden there's naked women and there's a scene from pornography I remember the first time it happened I thought to myself okay I guess we all just pretend we didn't see that it's not like anybody laughed it's not like anybody was like oh yeah it's not like anybody I think everybody was like what just happened and I remember the first time that it happened, John had a habit of taking his tape out and then just throwing it on the table right by the exit to the door. 
And I remember sitting there stunned. None of the quarterbacks said anything. I think we were all like, what did we just see? And for some reason, I remember going up and getting that tape, getting that tape and taking it to my office and immediately recording over it. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't want anybody to get in trouble. I remember thinking, I'm on John's coattails right now, and I want to ride those, I guess. The issue was it kept happening again and then again and again. I wish I could go back in time, but each time I can remember, I'd take that tape, I'd go into my room and I'd record over it. I don't know if I was protecting John because there was, <laughs> we came to a period where, you know, I, I wasn't all in, you know, for sure. I don't know if I was protecting myself. If I could go back, would I bring it to someone's attention? Well, I sure as heck wasn't going to bring it to Bruce Allen's attention. There were a lot of people in that meeting room. There were a lot of people that saw those same things that I saw. And that was in 2004. And these emails and everything that just came out, I mean, they came out in 2021. And there were some prominent people in that meeting room that saw the things that I saw. It's really hard whenever I think about it. Not proud of it, but that's what I did. I took those tapes. I remember recording over them. And I do. I remember coming home. You know, I used to keep a sweatsuit in my locker. And I'd come in each morning. I'd take my clothes off change into that sweatsuit, wear that sweatsuit all day, and then change when I came back home because I didn't want to have those same clothes on when I got home. I remember telling you I feel dirty. Yeah, you I didn't I know feel how gross. Yeah. I didn't know how much I could tell you. I didn't know how much I should tell you. Yeah. I was nervous. I knew I couldn't go to Bruce. I didn't know what to do. Right. And I erased the tapes. That's what I did. You never told me that part. need to beat up John Gruden or I mean I I don't wish him any ill will but I also feel like again there's there's just there's an iconography he's a caricature of a culture and as I'm listening to you I'm thinking about just this chronic lack of accountability and how interesting it is now that he's been thrown under the bus, you know, because these emails have come out. And it's almost like the emails are compared to all the things that he's been doing without any compunction whatsoever. He hasn't, he hasn't tried to hide anything about his personality all these years. But for some reason, they needed a scapegoat. So now one of their people who used to be their golden child has been thrown under the bus because they need to appear as if they're more enlightened now around misogyny and racism and homophobia. All the things that John Gruden was, you know, in emails just saying horrible things, you know, homophobic things, racist things misogynistic things when he had never ever tried to hide any of that 
two more of the trademarks of white supremacy culture, according to Tema Oaken, are individualism and I'm the only one. So individualism is this is this narrative that we're we're all individuals. We're not a part of a group. We're not a part of a culture. White people are individuals. White people don't get defined as by their gender. This is especially true for white men. They don't see themselves as a part of a, a class or a gender or a sexual orientation or a religion or uh, an age group. In a way, John Gruden, part of his allure was he was just this bigger than life person that had a, a really effective way of doing something that our culture really, really values. And I think about how white men move as individuals, but then can often turn and judge other people for not being team players. Like if a black player says, Hey, I'm uncomfortable with what you just said, or I, you know, I can remember when you were in coaching, hearing coaches complain about players being free agents or wanting this or wanting that when John Gruden wasn't really a team player, you know, he was looking out for number one. I mean, and that's what he got rewarded for. And then I think about this idea of I'm the only one. Let me just share some of the ways she talks about the ways that shows up. She describes it as an aspect of individualism, the belief that if something's going to get done right, I have to do it. It's connected to the white supremacy characteristic of one right way, the belief that I can determine the right way. I'm entitled, I'm, I'm qualified to say what the right way to do something is. And that one right way is developed in isolation from or without accountability to those most impacted by how, how I define the right way. There's little or no ability to delegate work to others, micromanagement based on a deep fear of loss of control, which requires an illusion, illusion of control. I really think the teams that he coached, and this is true of so many head coaches we've been around. It's their team. It's their culture. They've defined it. And one of the character traits of white supremacy culture and this I'm the only way is I'm the only one is putting charismatic leaders on pedestals. It elevates charismatic individuals. It romanticizes leaders. It puts leaders at the center of a movement, an idea, an issue, a campaign, a phenomena. And it works. This is the one I really want to say. And this, I'm feeling some kind of way about this now that I've heard you describe yourself erasing those tapes and you don't even know why. That one of the learned norms of white supremacy culture with this one right way thing is hiding and covering up the flaws of a leader in fear that the organization, movement, or effort will not survive. And that leadership is defined by the person who's in front or the most vocal. We'll be right back with Going Deep on Blue Ridge Public Radio. Welcome back 
to Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century. This episode, the John Gruden Experience. In over 25 years of coaching, that year in Tampa, the offensive staff was without a doubt the least collaborative of any staff I've ever worked on. No coaches really made contributions to the game plan. John would lock himself in his office and really formulate the game plan. And the coaches' jobs were just to communicate that to their players. If you offered an idea, if you offered a thought or something like that, John might listen, might not listen, depending on when you got him. But if it worked, it would have been his idea. And if it didn't work, I'd never been around a person. And I distinctly remember thinking this. I'd never been around a person that was so adept at deflecting blame. And it was actually interesting how he did it. He did want to do a lot of the cards uh, uh, himself. And the cards, when I talk about that, is whenever you practice as an offense, you draw the defense on cards for the scout team. And John would want to draw a lot of the cards himself because he didn't trust other people <laughs> to do it, especially with third down blitzes. And I used to say to him all the time, let me help you. Let me help you with those. No, no, no. I got to do it. I got to do it. Well, what ended up happening was they were done sloppily. They were done hastily because he was tired because he had so many other things that he was doing that we ended up redrawing them and correcting them quite often so we could just get through the practice. Kyle Shanahan, Jeremy Bates, and I would sit and redraw these cards because they were illegible. But another way that John, we covered for him, is we often kind of accepted the blame for mistakes that he might have made. You know, this is the only staff I've ever been on in my life where we didn't watch the film the day after the game as a staff. John watched it by himself, and we never got to ask any questions like, John, why'd you call that? What were you thinking? If he was in the room with other people, people might have raised questions, and I don't think that he wanted that. But the other thing John did, and it's very intentional, he was a master for giving the quarterback a lot of options at the line of scrimmage. We might get in a formation, and the quarterback would have to use a cadence to try to make the defense show what they're going to do. And once the defense showed what they were going to do, the quarterback had to get to the right play. For example, John might call trips right, two jet, all go special. Alert clap, heads up for 379, sluggo seam. And so that, for instance, is three plays right there in one. And if the play didn't work, John had this ability to say, well, the quarterback should have got to this. John, why didn't the quarterback get to that? Well, it's easier said than done sometimes, but it was a very purposeful way that somebody else made the mistake. I gave him all the tools that he needed to get the job done, and you guys just aren't getting it done. John, why can't the quarterback get the defense to undress so he can call the right play? Now, Brian Greasy, who does Monday Night Football now, was probably as smart and bright and intelligent as 
any quarterback I've ever been around. And I can remember when we were doing a game plan one time and John was installing it. And then, like I said, my job was to go back then with the quarterbacks and make sure we all understood the game plan and how we were going to get those defenses to undress. Well, John put a play up there one time and the quarterback had one of eight different things to get to. So if you get in a formation and there's three plays, that was called a three for one, Uh, uh, two plays. That's a two for one. John one time put a play up there and Brian Greasy leans over and goes, is that an eight for one? I said, gentlemen, we've just seen the first eight for one in the history of football. And we got to figure out how to get to the right play. As a coach, I was stimulated and I was intensely focused on helping the quarterbacks at the line of scrimmage make the defense undress so we can get to the right play. I took it as a challenge. Late in the season and as I went other places and as I talked to other coaches, I think I saw it for what it was. It was a system that if the play worked, John called the right play and was brilliant. And if the play didn't work, what happened on this? Why could the quarterback not get us to the right play? Because I gave him all the tools that he needed. And that, too, was really one of the frustrating things. He had no problem throwing a quarterback under the bus, throwing a coach under the bus. But he sometimes made it so complicated for us that it was hard to get to the right play. Zooming out away from this particular person. Because, I mean, part of my, my main point here in this conversation is that scapegoating John Gruden as some kind of outlier or some kind of aberration is, is a lie. John Gruden was created for the NFL, by the NFL, and this lack of accountability that you're talking about, this scapegoating system that he had to avoid account um, accountability this charisma that he had this lack of substance that he had i mean on some things he had substance on other things he didn't this inability to collaborate inability to delegate inability to create any kind of collective way of rewarding people for collaboration or having a collective system of accountability, using meetings to talk about problems instead of him putting on a show. All of these things are, they are cultural iconography. They are how whiteness is embedded in the NFL. People sometimes want to look for whiteness in things like racist slurs. And that's what he's gotten now, quote unquote, punished for. When really the ways that he carried and upheld whiteness is in the ways that he carried and upheld this culture of urgency and individualism and I'm the only one and I'm the key to success here. And there's so many other characteristics of white supremacy culture that that show up in the way people are rewarded and given more and more power in the NFL. That, that are never framed as racialized. They're just framed as good leadership. 
And I'm thinking of like another area she talks about are defensiveness and denial. And what you just described is a real culture of defensiveness and denial. I doubt people felt like they could call him on that. I mean, it's not like a quarterback's going to say, actually, no, you gave us so many confusing things. We didn't know what to do. You know, there was a whole system built around protecting his ego so that he could always be the genius and everybody else was the one messing it up. And that gets manifested in white culture around racism when white people feel that they have the the right to define what is or is not racism. And John, when John was, was called on his language in these emails of late, his first response was defined to define what is and is not racism and that he is not a racist. Everybody in this scenario, the people who fired John, the people who defended John, John himself, the culture that produced him, everybody is in denial about how white supremacy works. Attempting to scapegoat another person so that we don't really have to look at the culture that produced this person and paid him handsomely for decades to be who he is. Nobody's talking about that. remember one time we were playing the Kansas City Chiefs and we won the game. It was, it, it was a big game. We got off to a slow start in 2004, but we beat the Chiefs pretty badly. But anyhow, in the middle of the game, Brian Greasy had started that game and threw a ball to Michael Clayton. Mm-hmm. And Michael had it had been a bang bang play on the sideline. And I was watching the instant replay and it was incomplete. Michael dropped the pass. And I was up in the box on the headset with John, who was on the sideline. As as Michael dropped the pass, John said, review that. I think he caught it. Review it. And I said, I'm I'm watching it, John. I'm watching it. And I said, it's incomplete. Do not throw the challenge flag. It's clearly incomplete. And he said, I think he caught it, though. I think I'm going to throw the flag. I said, John, if you throw the flag, we're not going to get it. It's definitely incomplete. He said, hang on, look at it again. I think we need it. Now, interestingly, I didn't realize until later that this was illegal, but Bruce Allen, our general manager, stood right behind me in the press box. He's not allowed to be in the press box, but he was. And so I remember taking my headsets off and handing them to Bruce right behind me and saying, Bruce, tell him not to challenge this. You're looking at it as well. You'll never believe this, but Bruce Allen, the general manager, always called John Sparky. Nobody ever knew why, but Bruce Allen always called John Sparky. And he said, Sparky, you're not going to get it. We're looking at it on screen right now. It's incomplete. And Bruce put the headphones back on my ears and John threw the flag to challenge it. And then the first thing John says after he threw the flag is, Hey, John, do you think we got it? I said, no, I don't think we've got it. I saw the replay five or six times. Bruce saw it. Nobody thinks we got this. He says, well, I do. I think we got it. Hang in there. 
And then the officials came on and said, the pass is incomplete. The ruling on the field stands. That's as much as John ever dog cussed me up and down over that headset for allowing him to throw the challenge flag. And I just remember rolling around looking at Bruce Allen who's sitting behind me. What are you supposed to do? I told him five, six times. I'm looking at it. Don't throw the challenge flag. And it's kind of like just a microcosm that in some ways I really think he felt like he could will something to happen on the power of his personality or intimidating officials. I, I don't know. Maybe sometimes he, he did but I was pretty sure we weren't going to get that challenge flag. One of the new additions to Tama Oaken's document this time around is this idea of qualified. And she, she has this very rich description of how white supremacy has indoctrinated white people. And again, this shows up in lots of ways in white people. But she especially talks about the way it shows up in middle and owning class white people who are formally educated, you know, people who have a sense of entitlement around employment, mobility and opportunity and that white people have been enculturated to believe that they, we, I'm going to include myself, can fix the world, can save the world, can set the world straight. Now, I understand he's he's channeling this into a football game or whatever, but there's a sense in which whiteness teaches us that to internalize our own in, inherent qualification to make things happen, to improve whatever is around us, to fix things that are broken, this internalized assumption that we know what's right, that we know the best way, and how much white people get away with kind of faking it till they make it, like really not knowing what they're talking about, really not knowing what we're doing, but moving with such confidence and moving with such certainty. Just he really thought that he could get that overturned. I really believe that. He believed that if he said it, if he was confident about it, if he willed it into existence, that he could do that. This is, a, again, an extreme example of this idea of qualified. So, John, I want to say something to you. I'm grateful for the John Gruden experience. I'll always have a soft spot for Tampa Bay because that's where Mary Elizabeth was born. And after those cold Chicago winters, the Tampa Bay sun felt good, <laughs> felt good. But I also think it's a place where you started to get some clarity about your own understanding of professional virtue and a sense of purpose in your life. Something shifted for you there, and I remember that. And I know that you didn't tell me everything that was going on, and I know that it was hard. But I also really respect that you knew 
there were parts of that that were really attractive to you, but there were parts of it that just really didn't line up with your values. So much so that we, after only eight months there, packed up our whole family and moved to California. And I just want to say that I, I'm grateful for the John Gruden experience. And I'm also grateful for this time looking back at it because it's important for us as a society to really be able to look at these institutions, these iconic parts of our culture, and let them speak more to us than just about charismatic individuals, but let them speak to us about what matters to us most, what really matters to us most. And what really matters to me most is relationships. And I'm grateful for this one. You've been listening to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep at bpr.org. And make sure you like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.